By a show of hands, how many of you love change? Raise your hand. Yeah, not, not real confident there. I don't think a lot of us love change except this one. How many of you love change when it's your idea? Like raise, yeah, yeah. Like when it's your idea to rearrange or when it's your idea to trade something in. Uh, there, my wife loves to rearrange our house. And so on numerous occasions, especially when we first got married, I'd come home and she'd be, she'd be on my side of the bed, you know, or we'd have turned the bed around and I'd kick something in the middle of the night. And so there's a difference between when change is your idea and this one. How many of you love change when you don't have a choice? Like this is the kind of change that's the reason why you hesitated when you answered it the first time. Because there's a big difference between you realizing I want to change and I'm choosing it versus when change is kind of forced on you or foisted on you by somebody else. But what's interesting is that the older we get, it often takes one of these kinds of moments for us to change and learn and grow. Dr. Ralph Brockett has written the definitive book in the last 20 or 30 years about adult learning. Here's what he said in his book. He said, the need for adult learning is often triggered by some kind of developmental transition or crisis. What that means is for a lot of us, if we're going to learn something new or change in some area, it often takes an outside event that drives us to that. We don't naturally choose that on our own. We get into these well-worn patterns that this is just kind of what we do. And it takes something from the outside to trigger us into something new. Several years ago, we were living in Phoenix and uh, my wife had gotten pregnant. We were expecting twins and it became maybe the most adverse year of our lives up to that point. Our twins were almost lost at 17 weeks, and she was on bed rest for 18 weeks, and it was just a long and challenging year. And I was in a group at that time. We met on Wednesday mornings at a coffee shop, and we weren't really a Bible study because we didn't always open the Bible. We weren't always even a book group because we weren't always reading a book, but we were always together on Wednesdays. And on one particular Wednesday, it hit me that though I was with these guys every Wednesday— they weren't really in the know about how I was doing. I mean, they knew we were pregnant. They knew Danny was on bed rest. They knew we, our family was about to grow in an exponential way, but, but they didn't know how I was really doing on a soul level. I was in what Stephen Mansfield calls a sea of casual, superficial relationships. We were spending time together, but there wasn't real depth to it. And so at one point when we were talking, somebody asked me a question, and I said something to the effect of, I'm not doing well. And my friend Darren, who's always been the guy who kind of reads between the lines, he said, okay, Scott, tell us more. And whatever was the agenda for that day got set aside, and I just opened up and began to share that, that I was struggling, both in the way I was relating to my wife, but also in terms of my anxiety about this pregnancy. I was struggling to manage all the things in our life. And it was at that moment that our group changed. We went from being just this group that did Wednesday mornings together for an hour or an hour and a half to becoming our people. In the weeks and months to come, each and every guy at some point shared a struggle. Even the guy who was always the jokester, you know, who always had a joke for everything, even he broke down and cried when his son was facing a really hard surgery where the outcome was unknown. 
And I realized sitting around that table in those days that it takes work to build healthy relationships. They don't magically happen. They don't naturally happen. And one of the reasons is that they're opposed, not just by the busyness of our lives, but they're opposed spiritually. Jesus spoke to this in John 10.10, where he said, a thief, and that's his word for our enemy, Satan, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. And one of the reasons that this subject of relationships is so hard is that we have an enemy, his name is Satan, and he does not want us to live in healthy relationships. In fact, there are at least four ways our enemy attacks our efforts to connect. And if you have your handouts today, I've labeled these all with a D to give you something to guess at as we go through this. What's the word going to be? The first word is deception. The first way our enemy attacks our effort to connect is that he seeks to deceive us. All the way back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, we see this is the very first tactic our enemy uses. In Genesis 3.1, the text says, Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? These bolded four words, did God really say, is a tactic that I know the enemy has used on me, and I'm 100% certain he's used on you. Did God really say that he forgave you? Because I think you should, you know, beat yourself up for all your failures. Did God really say he called you to that? Because how on earth would God call somebody to that who is so unqualified? Did God really say that he wants you to walk in purity when everyone else says discard that as an old, antiquated idea? Did God really say you need to be in relationships? Because after all, aren't people so much hard work? And our enemy's first tactic is always to get us to question, did God really say that? But if, if deception doesn't work, he has plenty of other tricks in his back. And he'll move from deception to distance deception to distance. We see this again in the very first chapter of sin entering the world, Genesis 3. What happens when Adam and Eve buy into, did God really say? Well, distance begins to be created between them as they cover themselves with fig leaves. They hide from one another and ultimately they begin to hide from God. And that distance that was present in that very first marriage shows up in our marriages and our relationships today. That distance can be emotional, like shame, like loneliness, or it can be physical. For a lot of you who've moved to Prescott from somewhere else, you're experiencing distance from your people because the people with which you have the deepest relationship now live somewhere else. And it's great that they're your people, but when you get stuck with a problem, you can't always drive six or eight hours to them or have them drive six or eight hours to you. If the enemy can't get us with deception or distance, he'll move to distraction. We live in such a distracted world. Now, I think sometimes we think that our world is the most distracted world, and maybe, I mean, I haven't lived any other time. I don't have a time machine to go back and check. But I think people back when the newspapers were invented, you know, kind of railed over coffee at the coffee shop about everybody who wasn't talking to themselves on the train. They're all reading the newspaper, 
or those people are sitting around the radio distracting themselves. And the truth is we've always been good at inventing distractions. Some distractions are hobbies, the things that we do for fun. Some distractions are technological, the the tools that we use. And some distractions are good things like work that provide for our needs. But here's what our distraction is. A distraction is anything that is less important, which leaves no room for what is more important. And one of the things I hope you're discovering in this series is that relationships are those more important things. That they're like a retirement account. You don't think you need it until you need it. And if you haven't been investing in it when you didn't need it, it's not there when you need it. And all too often, we allow lesser things to take the place of more important things. And if our enemy can't get us for deception or distance or distraction, he'll go for the last one, which is discouragement. Which I think is where a lot of people end up. Maybe where you're at today where you're like, Scott, I'm just discouraged. I've tried this stuff that you've been talking about, and frankly, it didn't happen. Or you know what? I've invested in relationships, and it just takes so long to get there. Or you know what? I I invested in that where I used to live, but now that I'm somewhere new, I don't want to start over. So I'm just going to rely on those people that I have there. And you just get discouraged about even putting yourself out there again. Well, here's the big idea that we're going to lean into today as we continue our series, Find Your People. Every day, we are either moving towards or away from God's vision for our relationships. Every day, we're moving in a direction. None of us stays static. Even your body today is transforming. Your cells are regenerating. Your body is changing. And in the same way, your life is either moving towards the vision that God has for your relationships, or it's moving away from that vision and towards the vision our enemy has. See, our enemy wants us to live in loneliness and isolation. And God wants us to live in intimacy and interdependence. And we're either moving towards intimacy and interdependence in a relationship or in relationships, or we're moving towards isolation and loneliness. We're never staying static. And so as we get started today, I just want to ask you, which direction are you moving in? Are are you moving towards loneliness and isolation? Or are you moving towards intimacy and interdependence? And whichever direction you're moving in, you're either cooperating with and going along with God's agenda and his vision, or you're going along with our enemy's vision. Now, when you put it in that way, I think a lot of us would say, well, of course I want what God wants. But there are some steps that are required if you want those things. And that's where I'm going to spend the bulk of our time on today. How do we move towards God's vision for our relationships? How do we get there? Well, I think there's four things that we can do today to make that move. And the first one is we can hold tight to Jesus's vision for relationships. We can not only hear it and realize it, but we can begin to hold on to it tightly and grip it. When Jesus was going to the cross in a day we'll celebrate in 
like 100 days in Easter. It's coming fast. Jesus, on the, the night before he was crucified, on Thursday night, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed. And this is a moment that's well known because he was so anxious and stressed that the, the capillaries in his forehead burst. His blood mixed with his sweat, and he began to sweat drops of blood as he was recognizing the weight of going to the cross and being crucified for you and for me. And in the midst of that night, he prayed a prayer that John records in John 17. It's Jesus' final long recorded prayer that we have before the cross. In that moment, he prayed, Father, forgive them and other things. But in terms of a longer prayer, this is the, the longest prayer we have of his right before he goes to the cross. And one of the things he prays for is you and me. And here's what he prays for in John 17. Jesus says, I pray not only for these... Those are the disciples that he has with him. He says, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, because we believe in Jesus because of the word of the disciples. Not because some book bound in leather says this is who Jesus was, but because the people who were there wrote down their eyewitness accounts. We call them guys like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, who recorded the statements of those who were there, and we now believe because of their word. Jesus went on to say this. He says, may they be one as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. A couple weeks ago, we said this, that we are relational, and that isn't an accident. We are relational because the God whose image we were created in is relational. And so Jesus says, may they be one, us, now, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. As God is unified, as God is a relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, help us to be unified. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. He's sweating drops of blood because of the weight of that. And he's praying that we would have healthy relationships today. That's his vision for us. It wasn't just that he would die on the cross and forgive our sins, past, present, and future. He was praying to his Father that in the meantime, between us being saved and us going to heaven, we would experience a level of unity that is on par with his unity with his Father. And I think that's a vision that's frankly beyond what most of us have. We're just hoping to have somebody we can call if we get a flat tire. We're just hoping that maybe us and our spouse can get along maybe longer than today. We're hoping that that in-law doesn't come to visit. And if they can, God gives us the grace to not kill them. You know, like we, we've settled and lowered our vision so much lower. And that's why as a church, we say we have core values. One of our core values is submitting to scripture. And we often think of that in terms of these big things like there is a God and Jesus was God and man and the Bible is true and God created the world and God does have a standard for us to live. But part of submitting to scripture is saying, I'm going to allow my vision for my life to line up with scripture. And that's why if you say, hey, I'm submitted to Scripture, that means you've got to hold tight to the vision that God has for you. He wants you to live in relationships that reach a level of health and unity that mirrors the relationship the Son has with the Father. 
And if we hold on to that vision, then our vision of the future begins to shape the choices we make here and now. This is the power of a vision. Last year, one of my good friends, he likes to wear shorts and has a beard and makes fun of me for wearing jackets. Not going to name names, but you might know who he is. He and his family decided to go to Disneyland right around the Christmas break. Now, I would have suggested a different time of year because I know how crazy Disneyland is around Christmas, but that was their vision. And so they began to plan weeks and months in advance for this trip. And they say, they set aside time, took time off work, and they went to Disneyland. Their vision of the future shaped all the choices they made in the present. And they got there, and they were there on the busiest day of the year. And they had a great time, and they achieved their vision. The same thing is true for us in our relationships. We get a vision of what we want to do in the future, and then from that moment, we move back over weeks or months and years, and we begin to make choices. All of us have experienced this in some area of our life. The question I have for you today is, have you been practicing that vision and holding tight to that vision when it comes to your relationships? We do it for vacations, we do it for buying houses, but do we do it for our relationships? Are you making choices today that take you to the vision that God has for your relationships? And that's why you have to hold tight to that vision, because there's going to be lots of distractions and things that get in your way. That's the first piece of moving towards God's vision is you got to actually hold tight to that vision. The second thing you got to do is you got to prioritize proximity. You got to prioritize proximity. Over the last couple years, all of us at some point, because if you went to Cornerstone, you had no other option for a season, did church online. And if you did church online and you've now come back in person, you know there's a difference. There's a difference between only connecting with people through a screen and then connecting with them in person. There's a passage of scripture that I think for a lot of us has gained new meaning, new significance in the last two or three years. It's Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, where the writer says, and let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. 2,000 years ago, before there was high-speed internet, before there was Zoom rooms and live-streaming church, apparently there were some people who struggled to gather together, who didn't take seriously the opportunity to practice proximity and to prioritize proximity so they could encourage one another and spur one another on. And the writer of Hebrews said in the very first century, don't neglect this. In fact, prioritize this and encourage each other. And this is why we, we, we have to remember that some of our problems are not new problems. They're just old problems in new packaging. If you want to build a relationship with someone at some point, you're going to want to get together. Lots of people I know are, are meeting people and getting married to people that they met online. I have a family member who met his wife on an online dating app. 
But what's so interesting is that eventually, though you met online, you actually want to meet in person. Because I know lots of people who've met online and gotten married from online dating. I know no one who met online, started dating online, got married online, and now lives entirely online, though. Eventually, you want to be together. And that's because, as Jenny Allen says, proximity is the starting place for intimacy. Eventually, even if you meet somebody online, you want to bring that relationship into the physical, into the present. And yet all too often what we do is we deprioritize proximity. Now don't get me wrong, I've got friends that I've made online. I've got friendships that sometimes I maintain online. But what I've discovered is that if you want a relationship to grow, especially if you want it to grow deeper, there's only so much you can accomplish with this. Eventually, you want to be together in the same place. And so what this means is we have to start to do whatever it takes to get physically close to people. This might mean that you move because you're too far away from the people that you want to be around. You're like, Scott, that's a crazy, that's like a multiple hundreds of thousands of dollar decisions. I know. But if that's God's vision for your life, what is too big of a price to pay for that vision? You might say, hey, I'm going to go grocery shopping with you. That's our only way to be together. I'm going to brave Costco after church on Sunday afternoon together with you. And we're going to go through that and compete. And who can not spend $500 going through there, you know? Maybe you're going to say, hey, I'm going to go walking with you. Or I'm going to get where you are. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get physically with you. Because I have this vision. And I'm going to begin to allow, align my choices in the present with my vision of the future. I think all too often we downplay how significant it is to be sitting across from somebody, to being with them. And for those of you who all of your people live a five or six hour drive from you, part of the reason why you need people here now is you have to actually get physically close to those people. And a couple visits in person twice a year is not enough. You have to prioritize proximity because every day we're either moving towards or away from God's vision for our relationships. The third part of this is you have to be intentional. You have to be intentional. Now, one of the things I've discovered as a pastor is that there are passages of Scripture that we start to hold up sometimes as like the ideal or the dream, or wouldn't it be great if we could be like? And, and part of the challenge, I think, of that is we read passages and forget that people are people, no matter whether they're in the Bible or they're us. And often one of those passages is in the book of Acts. We read some passages in Acts about the, the early church and their community. And go, wouldn't it be awesome? We could build a church in the Bible. And I want to remind you, the church in the Bible had problems, We're going to read a passage here in Acts 2, and I just want to remind you, two chapters after this, people were literally struck dead in church for lying about their giving. 1 Corinthians 13 is beautiful, but it was written because the people there didn't actually know how to love each other. So here in Acts 2, this is what it says. Every day, 
these early Christians devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, I chose the word devoted here to bold because let me tell you, if you are going to get together with your people every day, that takes devotion. Even if you're married, to have a substantive conversation with your spouse every day, it takes work. If you've got kids to go beyond just where are you going, what are they doing, who's in trouble, what's due tomorrow, have they eaten, have they gone to the bathroom, is the toilet plugged? I mean, like, to to be able to get beyond that, to get to real substance, it takes work. And we often, you know, marvel at, wow, the, the church in Acts 2, but it says that they devoted themselves to this. They were intentional. It wasn't a priority, it was the priority. It wasn't, hey, when we get around to it, it was their intention. It was supremely important. This is how Crystal Payne talks about this. She says, living with intention means saying no to things that aren't important so you can say yes to what matters most. And here's the thing. The kind of relationships you want, they only are possible when you say no to other things. If you want to have healthy relationships, you're going to have to say no to some things. Now, when I think about the words yes and no, I think about my wife and I. My default is yes, and her default is no. When we're in a great place, we're awesome. When we're not, we're not. But living with intention means not just what are you going to say yes to, but what are you going to say no to so you can say yes to the good things. A couple weeks ago, I was preaching and I was talking about how no relationship happens when you're passive. Relationships grow when we're active. And my phone buzzed in my pocket and I knew what was happening. It wasn't a reminder from Apple that I'm on my phone too much. It wasn't a reminder for the NFL that a game was starting. It was my wife texting me because I said something in my sermon she didn't agree with. And so she texted me. She texted me and she said, that's not true. And she told me about this friendship that she had. She said, I, I didn't pursue me. That person pursued me. So later we were talking over lunch and I said, hey, you're probably right. I said, but once she did pursue you, you had to get intentional about letting her in and about building the relationship. If you think about the good relationships you've had in your life, just allow a name to come to mind. Allow a face to come to mind. Allow that relationship to come to mind. That relationship did not accidentally happen. If you have a good relationship with your spouse, you did not just accidentally get a great marriage. It came because you were intentional. The last one is you got to stay patient and you got to persevere. If you want to build a healthy relationship, it's not going to happen overnight. Paul, who wrote half of the New Testament, talked about this principle in terms of farming in Galatians 6. He says, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. He's speaking about in terms of doing good works, but the principle remains that if if we want to accomplish something good, 
we can't give up because it takes time. This isn't just a biblical principle. This is a life principle. A couple years ago at the University of Kansas, some sociologists decided, decided to study some freshmen who came to Kansas to go to college. Lawrence, Kansas is where the University of Kansas is. And most students who come to college don't know each other. They're starting from scratch. They're moving away from home. And they, they wanted to study these freshmen in their first semester to see how their friendships dis- developed. Here's what they discovered, studying about 150 freshmen. They discovered that it takes more than 40 to 60 hours together to form a casual friendship. They discovered, they went on, that it takes 80 to 100 hours together to transition into a friendship. And in their study, they discovered it takes more than 200 hours together to become good friends. That's why Paul said you can't give up when you're weary because it takes time. Now, I'm not sure that I totally buy their numbers. I mean, they did the research, so, I mean, they probably have a leg up on me. But one of the things I've found is that when you're an adult, for those of you who are adults in here or watching from home, you're not going to college ever again. You're never going to have the free time that you had in college. And what happens sometimes is we have people in our life that we've clocked a lot of hours with, But here's the thing. Those hours have not been intentional or vulnerable. With those guys that I was spending every Wednesday morning with, we'd spent a lot of hours together, but they weren't yet my people. Why? Because we hadn't been intentional and we hadn't been vulnerable about sharing. And so what it took was not 200 hours of all of us sharing all of our dirty laundry with each other. What it took was us taking those relationships that had been casual and superficial and beginning to be intentional and vulnerable with them and staying patient and persevering and allowing that work to happen. One of the great things about relationships is not all hours are created equal. Today, if you go spend three or four hours watching a football game with somebody, those hours are three to four hours. But they're not the same as if you get stuck on an elevator with that person for three or four hours. The level of intimacy and sharing in front of your TV is going to be different than being stuck in the elevator and wondering if you're ever going to get out. And that's why we have to realize that sometimes we have an opportunity, even in a short amount of time, to advance a relationship if we don't give up. And here's what I've discovered. Friendship is like parenting. How do you like parenting? Friendship is like parenting because we often feel tempted to give up because we feel like failures. You have not become a parent when you birth a baby or welcome a baby into a world. No. You are a parent when you have failed your first time as a parent. And you're like, man, I don't know what I'm doing. I totally blew that. For me, it was my oldest son was two weeks old. I was texting while he was sleeping and my phone fell out of my hand and bopped him right here on the head. That's the day I became a parent. And lots of times in the decades since, I've felt like a failure. 
And what happens when you feel that failure feeling? You feel like giving up. Why does it matter? Why do I go through this? Why do I pour my heart out? Why do I sacrifice myself? Friendships like that. Why do I keep reaching out if they can never get together? Why do I open up if they don't open up? Why do I sacrifice time and money if if it's just not coming back to me? And I just want to encourage you, sometimes obedience is just continuing to show up, trusting God with the fruit of your efforts. I went to that Wednesday morning group on so many occasions going, why do I keep coming? We're just standing on the surface. Until that one time where I said, you know what? We're never going to go deeper if I don't open up. And I opened up and the group changed. Not because I'm some sort of heroic figure, but because somebody had to. And that day it was my turn. And I just want to encourage you that for some of you, you've been showing up And if you give up, you're going to give up right before the good stuff happens. You're going to give up right before the fruit is born. You're going to give up right before the breakthrough happens. Because every day we're either moving towards or we're moving away from God's vision for our relationships. So before we go to the next steps, I want to remind you, because some of you missed this last week, that anything you've heard us talk about in this series that's a resource or a link or a list, all of that is at prescottcornerstone.com sermon hyphen resources. The quizzes, the list of therapists, the downloads, it's all there, and that link is in the back of your handout under the next steps. So speaking of next steps, let's go there next. How to put this into practice? Well, the first thing we can do is we can prayerfully make a plan. We can prayerfully make our plan. When it comes to building healthy relationships, who are those people that you want to build a healthier relationship with? It can't be everybody. It's probably going to be a shorter list. That's the first question. Who are those people? Secondly, where am I going to create proximity? Maybe it's that you're going to start showing up to your small group more consistently and saying no to things so you can say yes to that. Maybe it's you're going to create proximity because you know somebody else goes to the same place when you're there, and you're going to say, hey, let's go together. Let's meet up there. Hey, I see you hiking. I like to hike. I see you mountain biking. I like to mountain bike. I see you drinking coffee. I drink coffee. I'm going to create proximity there. And then how can I be more intentional? How can I dial down the knows and turn down those things so I have more space for the yeses. You have to have a plan. You have to have a vision to start aligning your choices to that. The second one is you need to think like a farmer, not a phone. Think like a farmer, not a phone. Some of you are laughing. Lindsay, our office manager, started laughing when I gave her my hand up this. She said, what do you mean, Scott? Well, here's the thing. If you're a phone what speed does this move at? Fast. What happens if it doesn't go fast? You throw it. (laughs) You turn it off. You yell at it, okay? How fast does a farmer go? Slow. Your phone moves in seconds and milliseconds. Farmers move in weeks and months. The good news is you can have healthier relationships. The bad news is you won't have them this afternoon. You gotta think like a farmer. 
you put the seed in the ground after you prepared the soil, you water it, you tend to it, and you watch it grow. If you want to build healthier relationships, you need to think like a farmer, not a foe. The last next step is this one. Thank your people. Some of you who've been with us for the last three weeks, you already have some people in your life. Some people who showed up for you, people who know what's going on with you, people who check in with you. But here's the thing. They don't know how much they mean to you. Andy Stanley once said, unexpressed gratitude communicates ingratitude. This may be a newsflash for you, but no one can read your mind. No one can know what's going on in your heart. And if you have people, that is awesome. Do they know it? Don't wait until you're celebrating their life to tell them the difference they're making in your life. So maybe what you need to do is before you leave today, pull out your phone or grab them if they're in the room and just say, hey, you're my person. And you need to know that I don't know where I'd be without you. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for checking in. Because if you have your people, you have found a great gift. And don't waste the opportunity while you have it to let them know just how grateful you are. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the blessings that you bring in our life. Another day, another opportunity. Some of us, Jesus, have found our people. And we pray that you'd help us to be intentional, to persevere, to put the work in and show up with the vulnerability that strengthens those relationships. We thank you for praying for us before you went to the cross. And we thank you that you've made it possible for us to experience a deep sense of unity with the people in our lives. But there's some others of us that aren't there yet. And we're struggling. Life's blows are harder to take. And life's gifts don't seem as sweet because we're going through them alone. And so Jesus, we pray that we would recognize the, the tactics of our enemy. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear when we're being deceived and led astray. And we pray that each day, each morning, like the prophet Jeremiah says, you'd give us new mercy to take the steps we have it in our power to take to move towards people. Whether it's with our groups or as a church on Sundays, we pray that we would not neglect gathering together. And we pray that like a seed planted in the ground, you would grow up in our lives a deep sense of community and togetherness with others. We thank you that you have not abandoned us and you want to bring people around us who won't abandon us either. In your name we pray, amen.